felt like that was my rock bottom. My, um, before I joined the military, was my rock bottom. I was um, living in a shelter. I had um, a pretty bad drug problem. I was on meth. Um, I, uh, it, was, it was tough. Um, it took me about two weeks to get addicted to meth and about two years to get off. That was Bird Waters, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 77. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. As you might have noticed, this show isn't released every week like most other podcasts. Instead, full eight-episode seasons go live on the first of the month every other month. And in each season, you'll get to meet a wide range of interesting and refreshingly imperfect people who join me for one reason only, to share the truth of what's really going on in their lives and to talk about things that we think don't get talked about openly and honestly enough. That means deep conversations about work-life balance, body image, shame, fear, relationships of all types, sex, social media, religion, mental health, racism, parenting, self-improvement, goal setting, and more. And of course, since this is an adult podcast that covers adult topics, you can expect to hear adult language from time to time. So consider this your little warning on that. Let's see, what else do I want to tell you about this show? Basically, I just want you to know that no one's trying to sell you anything. No one's forcing their agenda down your throat. No one is trying to get you to fix yourself. No one's preaching a so-called perfect six-step life hack plan for anything, which thank goodness, right? Because I'm so over that type of stuff. Instead, my hope is that each episode of this show makes you laugh, think, and just feel less alone. Because honestly, that's all that I ever want, to know that I'm not alone. Which is why this podcast is more than a podcast. It's a community. And you won't hear any ads or any sponsors or any other kind of outside influence. The show is actually 100% listener-funded, and each new episode is made possible by people just like you, who have pledged $8 per eight-episode season. To do this, we use a platform called Patreon. And not only does your support cover the costs of producing the show and ensure that it can keep going throughout the year, but it also earns you access to over 30 hours of exclusive bonus content and a super fun community. You'll get extra episodes with favorite past guests, people like Kate Grace, Kathleen Shannon, Alexandra Franzen, and Carrot Quinn, just to name a few, with new bonus episodes added every month. You'll also get end-of-month reflection episodes directly from me, where I go into detail about my successes, failures, goals, and lessons learned each and every month. You'll get my popular weekly email series, Notes of Grit and Grace, in your inbox each Friday if you want that. You'll be able to join our fun, casual monthly book club if that's your thing. And you'll just have lots of cool opportunities to help shape the future of the show. So for all of that, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per season. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support is what will enable the show to continue. And if you're in the position to be able to help fund the show, I can't tell you how much that would mean to me. Plus, it's going to be so much fun for us to be able to get to know each other behind the scenes in our community. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Bird Waters. When Bird was nine years old in the Pacific Ocean off the shore of Santa Monica Beach, she caught her first wave. That day, she realized two things. One, she was powerful beyond measure. Two, she was at the humble service of nature that the ocean could take her into its unfathomable depths or return her safely to the sandy shore. It's a dichotomy she hasn't forgotten since, one that will prove to show up again and again in her life, the need to sink or swim. 
Today, as an Army veteran, freelance photographer, wave rider, full-time pre-med student, and lifetime nature seeker, Bird is deeply passionate about exploring biosynthetic pathways and pathways to enlightenment. She admits life wasn't always easy, and at times it was dark, and when the light never showed, she learned to make fire. In this episode, Bird tells one honest story after another. She's a wonderful storyteller, and she talks to us about addiction and recovery, about photography, about family, about being a full-time pre-med student, and so much more. We talk a lot about nature, and she shares her thoughts on the relationship that people of color in America have with the outdoors. We also discuss identity, how society puts us in boxes, and how to consciously step out of those boxes and take up our full space in the world. This conversation was honestly one of my favorites, and I know that you'll love hearing from Bird as much as I did. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and the resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at nicoleantoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. Let's do this. Bird, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Tell me what you are totally obsessed with right now. Ooh, what am I totally obsessed with right now? That would have to be school. Um, more specifically, so biology, uh, biosynthesis of cells, physics, research of cellular biology, molecular biology, all of those things I'm uh, knee deep in right now. <laughs> um, th- so you're, you're in medical school, right? What year? Um, actually, I'm in pre-med. Okay. I go to a university in Washington called Bastyr, and it's a naturopathic and holistic medical school. Ooh, interesting. Okay. So before you just said a lot of words that I don't think that I know what they mean, um, tell me what biosynthesis means. <laughs> so biosynthesis is basically the process that your cells go through to um, to take the food that you eat, for instance, the sugar um, in the food that you eat and turn it into energy, um, DNA replication and how this very elegant process that our body goes through to create the life um, that we live, to breathe, to walk, to regenerate um, all of your different cells and your organs. So it's actually, it's complex, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Isn't it crazy how much stuff our bodies are doing that we're not doing consciously? It's, <laughs> you know, um, let's see, this is my second quarter. So, you know, we're, we're about 20 weeks into the program and I have so much information in my brain. And so I've learned so many things about this little microscopic uh, being, basically, that controls so many different things. Right now, we're going through um, DNA, which is even smaller and more complex of a system and a structure that's inside of the cell. And one of the most amazing things that Um, I learned you kind of know on this subconscious level, but you don't really think about it is how jam packed your one little cell. Right. So we have maybe, you know, five trillion cells in our body and each cell has chromosomes and those chromosomes have DNA. And if you were to take that DNA out of the cell, it would stretch and stretch and stretch, you know, go back and forth, back and forth down, uh, say, a football field. So there's this beautiful compaction that happens to all of these chemical processes in your body. 
And, you know, and then you just go up and up from microscopic to a macroscopic level and you become this person, you know, dealing with the stuff in the world. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is going to be the thing that I think about now for the next like six days. Um, tell me what led you to this program, to being in school for this. So I think I was always drawn to uh, medicine, science, uh, super curious kid. Um, I loved figuring out the way things worked. I would, um, if I were to cut myself, for instance, playing, I would watch the process of scabbing and healing like every single day and figure and wonder what's happening, what's, you know, what's going on in my body. Um, and, you know, I was, I was one of those 20 year olds that didn't really have a strong idea of how I wanted to go about life, you know? So I went to school and then I left school. I went to school and I left school. And in my mid 20s, I joined the army. And um, I took this entry exam. It's called the ASVAB, and it's an aptitude test. And I scored super high on it. And they give you, based on your score, you get um, a list of jobs. And I chose medical laboratory technician. Uh, And it was between that and watercraft engineer, which I thought was really cool because you can only be stationed in Puerto Rico, Hawaii or Virginia Beach. But they didn't have a sign on bonus and the medical lab had a sign on bonus. So I took that and I went to school for that. They compact about three and a half years of schooling into one year. So it was a really intense program. And after that, I learned how to work in a clinical lab. So I did everything from hematology, which is looking at the different types of cells in your body, to chemistry, uh, microbiology, which is kind of like taking specimens and putting it on an agar plate, you know, and watching things grow and then testing that to see, you know, what uh, disease processes you might have in your body at the time. Uh, and then finally, I worked in a blood donor center and we would travel around the country and we would uh, collect blood for soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we would uh, collect it, we would process it, we would test it, cross match it. And I just fell in love with this uh, idea of using my brain for humanitarian purposes to help others. So when I got out of the military, I continued on that path of clinical lab and I was going to school and I was in a chemistry class and I bombed it. I just didn't do well at all. And I had to wait two quarters for that class to be offered again. And during that time, I was just, you know, researching on my own about what I was going to do with my degree, how I was going to live in the world, um, what kind of job I was going to get. And I really wanted to start, um, not taking synthetic drugs, for instance. I wanted to heal my body naturally. And Bastyr just kept coming up. It kept coming around. And um, it's so well respected here. And there's you know, so many people in the state and around the country that it's, it's the leading school in naturopath medicine. So I looked into it and uh, came and I toured the campus. And the rest was history. I mean, it's a converted seminary. And I grew up in Catholic school, so there was something immediately about (laughs) the school that was just so uh, familiar. And it's housed in a state park as well. It's right in the middle of a state park. So all things just said, this is where you need to be. Um, So 
I applied, I got in and here I am. That's an incredible story. So how long is the program? How long will you be there? So the program is five and a half years. Um, my particular, um, duration will be five and a half years. So I will finish the undergrad program in the summer of next year. And I actually plan on doing the ND or the naturopathic doctorate program in the San, uh, at the San Diego campus. Oh, okay. That will be a change of scenery. Absolutely. You know, I'm originally from California. I'm a surfer. Um, uh, I love tacos and sunshine and beaches <laughs> and all of those things that just, you know, just give me the warm and fuzzies. So um, I'm really excited about going to that campus. It's much smaller. It's brand new. Um, and I think that there'll be really good research opportunities there as well. So I'm looking forward to that. So when you kind of project ahead, you know, when you're done with all of this, you know, this program, this school, what do you envision for yourself? Where do you want to take this? So there's a couple of things that I see. Um, I would definitely like to be in research initially. And and that kind of involves being with um, bigger organizations, bigger companies, working on everything from um, how to kind of insert naturopath into the pharmaceutical world, um, how to heal your body with more natural substances, um, how to take some of the ideas and philosophies of naturopath medicine and incorporate them with some more traditional medical modalities. Uh, for instance, like in cancer, having taking a complementary and alternative approach to changing your diet and more existential way of living uh, on top of chemotherapy and uh, pharmaceuticals is really, really interesting to me. Um, so I really want to kind of insert myself there. I have an idea for this project of mapping out your the life span of your body cells and so, for instance, you know, your blood cells regenerate every couple of weeks, whereas your liver cells regenerate, you know, um, I don't want to misspeak here, but let's say every several months. Um, and if I could have a specific patient come in at age 35 years old and to be able to map out where their cells are in their lifespan at the time and what they need to incorporate in their life, in their diet, in their daily exercise regimen, that will be the most beneficial to heal their body on their own with, you know, just with life. You know, I think that that's really amazing. And after that, what I really want is my own practice, a really small clinic, you know, 45 minutes outside of the city on a small piece of land with a farm, a co- couple tiny houses. <laughs> I mean, that's like a dream. I'm like obsessed with everything you're saying. Okay. So, oh man, I have to like take a deep breath. I have so many questions for you. I feel like there's so much good stuff to talk about. I'm curious, I guess the first thing that comes to mind, since you have been interested in, you know, this more natural naturopathic approach since, you know, being in school, have there been any specific lifestyle changes that you've made personally as a result of things that you've learned? Oh, you know, no. (laughs) And I think that, um, might segue later on in our conversation. I think, um, I am always the last 
um, patient. I'm always the last one that I think about when I put things into practice. I'm really good about seeing what other people need and really helping them and researching things for them and sending it on their way. Um, I have a friend whose mother is just diagnosed with stage three pancreatic cancer. So, you know, I went through this, I put together this package of research and, you know, this is what she should eat and drink. And, um, but I don't do that for myself. I get lazy and I still order a pizza, you know, if I'm studying too long, um, uh, things like that. I still smoke clove cigarettes from time to time. Like it's just one of those things that I'm working on with myself actually. That's interesting. I mean, I'm personally really interested. I've said this on a million episodes because this is like one of my underlying interests is like the, the process of closing the gap between what we say we want and what we actually do, or even just looking at the disconnect between what we know and how we behave. Right. And it's not to say that we have to change. You can know something and choose not to act on it. Right. That's free will. But I don't know. I always find that really interesting. And it's refreshing to hear someone talk about, hey, there's, I would like to be doing some different things, but I don't do them. There's just something really comforting about that. I'm really glad to hear that, actually, because, you know, I think it's, aside from the people that know me the best, it, it might be one of my like little secrets. I think um, oftentimes I per- project and portray, um, you know, different than I am. Uh, you know, I'm a good person and I, I eat well and I definitely spend a lot of time in nature and I exercise and things of that nature. But um, I haven't quite gotten to the, you know, the ideal, the, you know, the goal yet. Yeah. I mean, but do we ever, right? Like I think I have this picture in my head of, you know, what my ideal day or my ideal lifestyle would look like. And the only way that I can stop from going insane is recognizing that that's never going to happen. Right. And that it's like, (laughs) that it's a compass that I try to use to orient my behavior. And then just the, I don't know, lifelong journey of trying to not be an asshole to myself when things don't work out. Right. Like that's true. Okay. Well then on the, the theme of this theme we're talking about in honesty, what What's the one, it could be something super small, change that if you did make it that you think would have the biggest impact that you just haven't made yet? Oh, stop, uh, to stop smoking, Mm -hmm. for sure, for sure. Um, You know, I've had my own battles with addiction. Um, I just have an addictive personality. So it's not like I have one favorite vice, but once I get and once I have a vice, I go really hard on it. <laughs> um, and smoking has been one of those things that I've come back to for different reasons. You know, I've stopped, you know, for years and, and come back to it. So that's one of those things that's like, that's the next thing on the list for sure. And there's always something on the list, right? And that that's not a bad thing. I think I, I, I struggle a lot. I mean, so much of this podcast is about kind of like the anti 10 step life hack, right? Like, it's not like, here's the 10 things you have to do in order to be happy or healthy. I don't believe in that really, but that doesn't mean that I am not a huge supporter of, you know, personal growth and doing the work and changing and doing hard things. And it's this kind of interesting space to occupy of valuing the process of trying to be better or trying to be my best self without I don't know, being miserable along the way or without being too hard on yourself. It's, it's tough. Like it's a tough thing, I think, to be a person in the world and to navigate that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely agree with you. Um, I remind myself often, more recently, one of my mantras is stay in your body bird. 
stay in your body. And that is because I'm extremely heady. You know, um, I can spend just the entire day in my own world, coming up with my own, you know, conclusions about things and, you know, have entire conversations with myself, you know, about anything. So it's really important for me to take those thoughts and that energy and move it downward. And once I do that, I, I do also, just like you say, I realize like, there's always going to be something I'm moving towards a goal and the journey is what's important. And that's what makes me happy. And once I realize that, you know, I can look up and realize like I have such an amazing life and so many amazing aspects to it um, that I don't have to spin about one particular thing, which can happen sometimes. Okay. So it sounds like you and I definitely have the, have in common that when you mentioned, you know, being heady or being in your head too much and needing to get into your body, I'm awful at that. And so when, how did, I mean, real specific, like, what do you do that works for you to get kind of out of your head and to have this more like stay in your body, grounded, physical, present experience? One of the the smaller things that I do, for instance, this morning, I woke up. Um, usually I go right to my phone. I read the news, um, you know, different things like that or check up on some emails and it immediately takes me into my head. Um, and I got out of the bed and I planted my feet on the floor. It was the first thing I just boom. And this is the sound where I can hear it, you know? Um, and I stretched and I took a deep, deep breath. And then I walked into the next room, slapping my feet onto the floor. And I do that often. Um, most times in the evening when I'm tired and I want to stay awake. Um, and I don't even do it consciously. I just realized why I do it. But, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, actually, but it's my way of, having like a sensory reaction, a sensory relationship, this dynamic relationship with my feet or with my hands. Um, and I love, you know, on a more, on a more macroscopic level, I guess I go outside a lot. I spend a lot of time in nature. Um, and then I'll leave my phone when I do that, if at all possible. Sometimes if it's getting dark, I won't do that for safety reasons. But I spend a lot of time just watching trees move. And I love windy days. It's one of my favorite to hear rustling. Um, I have relationships with the squirrels and the rabbits, you know, in all around campus and things like that. So that is really, really helpful for me in particular is to just uh, see the world and these really small ecosystems within ecosystems. You know, I love finding little crevices um, in trees where I see insects, you know, basically living their lives. It's amazing to see like different species in a completely different world that have absolutely no idea what's going on with you and what you're doing. And it just gives you this, um, this reverence, this reverence for the complexities of life. Mm, I love that. So I definitely want to talk about nature. I know you describe your describe yourself as a lifetime nature seeker. And I'm really curious about that as someone who has only come to love nature as an adult, like really in the past couple of years, it's one of the big reasons that my husband and I moved to Oregon. I went on my first backpacking trip. My I, I did a, a, the Oregon section of the PCT last summer um, by myself, which I mean, uh, that's very much my have no experience and then do like the crazy version of something where I, you know, I'd never really been camping before and then went on this, you know, month long trip by myself. But I'm really new to this and came to it as an adult. And it sounds like that hasn't been the case for you. Like, has this been something that you've always loved spending time outside? Absolutely. 
absolutely 100%. Um, you know, it started off, <clears throat> excuse me, it started off as a necessity. It started off as a way to escape uh, my sometimes uh, erratic or tumultuous home life. And uh, there was a lot of uncertainty that would happen in, in behind closed doors in those four walls and escaping on my bike um, or just, you know, going outside into the courtyard or the backyard. It became a safe haven. It became a brand new world where I could use my imagination and I could make up things and I could befriend the worm or the insect or the furry caterpillars, which were my absolute favorite. I used to collect rocks and name them. I would like tear little pieces of paper and I would write, I would think of a really good name and I would name the rock and then I would tape it to the rock and I would keep it in like a caboodle. And I had like hundreds of named rocks in caboodles. Um, so I think it started really early for me. I lived on the beach when I was younger. I surfed when I was younger, mostly boogie boarded, but I definitely learned to surf when I was young. And my relationship with the ocean um, is long, it's vast, it's, um, it's powerful, and it humbles me every single time I'm in it. And it reminds me of, you know, who I am in the world, uh, which is, you know, powerful and minuscule all at the same time, mm -hmm. which I it sounds from the way that you're describing it that your experiences in nature, in wild spaces, were solo experiences, like solitary experiences. I'm interested, like, do you feel like you were taught anything about nature, about being outside, like while you were growing up, either directly or indirectly? Was were those activities that kind of adult folks in your life were doing? Um, because it sounds like it's something that you were pursuing on your own. That's a really good question. And the answer is no. I didn't have anyone uh, teaching me about um, the change of foliage or, you know, how to smell seasons or how to read stars um, or why seasons are named what they are or any, you know, even the s smaller things like this is an annual, this is a deciduous tree, <laughs> uh, this is a pine tree. I think that um, my experience was definitely solo. I was an only child for the first 10 years or so. And um, and even after that, you know, that's a really big age range for siblings. So I still had the only child mentality pretty much the entire time until my sister was old enough to kind of do some of the trekking with me. Um, but I think that the relationship that People of color, um, and maybe it's not specifically people of color, but in my experience being a person of color, I think our relationship to nature is, is it's, it's a trying one. Um, it's not as, mm, it, it's not as worked as I, as I would like it. It's not as, um, you know, cultivated, I guess is a good word, as I would like it to be um, when I see, you know, little brown and black people in um, nature or not in nature. I wonder, you know, I've been camping dozens and dozens of times, and I can probably count on my hands the amount of times I've seen a, a family of color out there. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really sure what that's about. I have theories, of course. I've thought about it in my head <laughs> for, uh, you know, uh, many, many nights. But 
for me personally, it was a solo journey, one that I, I enjoyed. And from time to time, I had some friends come on that journey with me. But, you know, little girls oftentimes, um, sometimes even little boys, aren't really keen on dirt and worms and, you know, being sweaty and, <laughs> you know, not in the age of like Super Nintendo and, you know, all of those different things that kind of kept our attention. So... Yeah, well, when we were talking before recording, um, you know, for me to just get a sense of what you wanted to discuss, and one of the things you said was, you know, people of color in America and, you know, that relationship to nature. And that's super interesting to me. So I know you said that you've had theories and things you've talked about in your head, but anything else that you want to say about this, I'm super interested in. So go for it. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, and I specifically said America because I'm not super um, versed on what family dynamics are in other countries. Um, I, you know, can only speculate that in more indigenous places, they definitely have more access and a deeper relationship to nature. Um, I think here in America, there's a couple of things that happened Um one, we were, uh, you know, specifically uh, black people, specifically African-American people were brought to this country and, you know, put into fields, put into a specific type of nature um, to work and, uh, you know, very, very long hours. And, and I don't think that there was reverence for or there was any time to just sit back and enjoy that wind on your face you know, any time to enjoy what was actually happening around you. So I think that there was the disconnect started there. Um, And when we did get access to uh, ownership, to living in, you know, cities and metropolitans, to having, you know, the ability to get on public transportation and, you know, live in, you know, urban kind of metropolis, I think that we tried really, really hard to etch our claim to those places. Um, and then suburbia became the place for non-people of color, for white people. So that the access to uh, places that weren't as urbanized was again cut off from us. Um, and, and I don't think that there was a lot of access or time for families of color to take those types of vacations, to go camping, um, to take a RV trip. Now, that's not in totality. That's not every family, of course. You know, um, I've been on many RV trips with my families um, and friends of mine as well have. So that's not everybody's story. But, you know, in general, I think that it is so. What I see now, especially with this uh, with tech, this lure of technology and kids really um, not being taught the value of nature and not being taught the value of knowing what happens around you and being able to identify life, you know, as as it happens around you is uh, it's a challenging thing for me to see for sure. And um, I oftentimes think of ways to kind of insert my love and expertise um, and knowledge about around nature with the with the youngins in the world. So Mm -hmm. that's definitely on the list of things to do once school kind of dies down a little bit is to 
you know, uh, insert myself in some already ongoing projects. There's some some pretty cool projects going on here in Seattle already, uh, kind of taking uh, kids of color out into nature and teaching them different things. So I think it's important. No, I mean, I'm really grateful for everything that you just shared. I, this is something, so my introduction, like I said, to nature, I mean, that sounds crazy. Like, obviously I knew that the outside world was there, right? But I, I mean, I grew up in Manhattan and have never, had never, was never raised to value doing outdoor stuff. Like I was an indoor kid, like read inside, go to museums, like don't do physical exertion, right? So for me, my kind of pathway into this was through having friends and then finding kind of blogs and books essentially about long distance hiking, right? People who are doing through hikes of mostly, you know, the big trails in the US, the Pacific Crest Trail, the Appalachian Trail, right? And reading their memoirs. And so like a lot of what I know has come through that culture. And it's an interesting, I mean, race is a subject that isn't talked about that much, I feel like, amongst the, I don't know, the long distance hiking community, but it, if you look for it, it definitely is being talked about more and just like people's interesting take on, on why I remember there's a woman, um, I hope I pronounced her name correctly. Uh, Rahawa Hale. I don't know if you know who she is, but she's, um, an Eritrean American writer. And she through hiked the AT last year. Um, she wrote this post, I can link to it in the show notes, um, for Buzzfeed, uh, about how the post is titled how black books lit my way along the Appalachian trail. And it was all of the different black authors. Um, and she left them in shelters for other people. And it was a lot about her experience, you know, being a black woman in a sea of essentially white hike. I mean, the long distance hiking, it's what 70, 75% male, right. And I'd say larger percentage of that white for, and you know, she talks about that a lot. And there was one thing that she said in, in the article that really, I don't know, that kind of stuck with me. She said, um, there's no divorcing the lack of diversity in the outdoors from a history of violence against the black body, systemic racism and income inequality. And that's like part of a story she's telling about how, you know, when, cause through hikers, I mean, when you're going on long distance hikes, you're like filthy and you like people sometimes think that you're homeless or you're some kind of vagrant or whatever. And so the reactions in town and she was talking about like that reaction just in general as being a hiker, then being a woman, then being a black woman and how, you know, the kind of systemic racism plays into it. It was a really interesting article. So I, I don't know, just wanted to share that. <laughs> oh, no, that sounds really, really interesting. I would love to, to read that for sure. <clears throat> every um, experience that uh, in any way mirrors my own or kind of, a, you know, I have an idea or a, a way of thinking that is shared is um, it's comforting in a way. Uh, it, it's weird. It's this weird dichotomy where something that uh, can upset me also comforts me you know, to know that I'm not the only person thinking about this or feeling that. Um, and, you know, by no means, and I think I, I said this already, uh, am I saying that African-American people don't have a relationship with the outdoors or don't hike? I think that there's also a lot of articles and blogs talking about, um, you know, that myth that, you know, black people don't hike and things of that nature. Um, but just the fact that we have to say it, just the fact that there have to be blogs about it uh, is something that other cultures can take for granted, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, that's really interesting. And that's intense. I don't know if I could even do the, the AT. Um, well, I'm sure I could, but it sounds. And did you say you did that? 
I did the Oregon section of the PCT last year and I'm in the process. I'm like 98% sure that I'm going to do the Washington section this summer. I mean, we'll see against all common sense. Like it was so hard. It was awful. It was amazing, of course, but it was just so awful. And like enough time has passed now, you know, when like you do something and it's, terrible and awful, but also amazing. And then enough time goes by that you kind of like forget that it's the worst and you can trick yourself Mm -hmm. into thinking people say, this is what childbirth is like. This is for me, what running marathons was like that, you know, you're looking through pictures and you're like, well, maybe just like one more time. So I'm in that place where I'm thinking that it's a good idea to to do this. And I don't know. It's like, I I hate it and I want to do it. And then I hate myself for wanting to do it. It's good. It's a confusing time. I get it. I get it. How long was it? Um, uh, 26 days. This would be longer though. The Washington section is longer and quite a bit harder. So we'll see. 26 days. Yeah. I mean, listen, I made a lot of mistakes. I don't know. (laughs) I hiked too many miles. It should have taken longer. I mean, this would probably be more like 35 days, but I'm in the process of planning it. So I'm kind of like knee deep in just that world in general. So hearing that like anything even, you know, peripherally related to this that you wanted to talk about was super interesting to me. I love hearing other people's experience, you know, with the wilderness and just like thoughts and what it is for them to move through that. And, you know, cause there's, like you said, there's a lot of commonalities always, Oh, I'm not the only one that feels, you know, X way or whatever, but, um, there are a lot of differences too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you go for it. So of all of the kind of outdoor things that you've done, do you have either a favorite activity or a favorite memory for you? In the outdoors? Mm-hmm. Well, my absolute favorite activity is surfing, uh, for sure. Anything, anything on a board. I mean, the surfing definitely takes the top spot of boarding. Um, but being in Washington for the last eight and a half years, that's, you know, close to impossible. I've definitely been surfing out here, but it's not as fun. It's pretty cold. Um, so I skateboard a lot in the summer, in the late spring, snowboard any chance that I get it's gotten uh ridiculously expensive over the years so it's not as much fun (laughs) to spend you know 250 bucks a day just to ski but um yeah yeah definitely anything to do with the the ocean Uh, that is such a dynamic relationship that requires a lot of thought and a lot of humility and understanding of how this vast body of water operates and how to work with it and not against it. That's the only way to make it work is to ride the wave is to, you know, go with the tide. Um, Otherwise you are thrashing about. And I think it's such a good analogy for life. So it really reminds me of kind of like, uh, you know, calculated steps, um, and then letting go, you know, it's this beautiful combination of having control over certain things and knowing when to just let go of that control and let whatever happens, happens. Mm, Right. Which is, again, I feel like the like overarching work of life, (laughs) like sounds easy, but is not easy. Nope, not at all. It's a lifetime journey and a lifetime, uh, you know, lesson to, uh, you know, surfing for sure, no matter how many times you do it, how many years you do it, there's every single wave is different. Every, I've never been on the same wave twice. So it's, uh, yeah, again, it's just this, this beautiful learning lesson every single time 
you know, you take your experience into the ocean with you, you know, certain things. Um, and then you just have to really trust that everything that you know is going to work to your benefit in the unknown. Hmm. I love that. That's beautiful. So I guess switching gears a little bit, this might kind of seem like a strange left turn, but Something I've been thinking about lately is kind of looking back over past experiences that kind of at the time felt like the end of the world or were super hard or challenging, but then, you know, with the gift of time and being able to kind of reflect turned out to be really helpful or impactful growth moments or turning points. And I'm curious if there's anything that you can think in your life that, you know, at the time felt like the worst or, you know, maybe not that dramatic, not like a rock bottom necessarily, but something that was really challenging or hard that now looking back on it, that you're almost maybe not grateful for, but that really was kind of impactful catalyst for growth for you. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's see, let's pick one. There's been a few. <laughs> um, so the thing that is, is popping out in my mind is uh, my DUI. That was uh that was a turning point for sure and that changed my life in so so many ways and looking back on that situation which was about four years ago now I am a completely different person and I don't know how long it would have taken me to get it together to see you know, what was really in front of me without that jolt. Mm. Yeah. That as much as we don't want bad things to happen, right. Sometimes we do need, you know, for lack of a less cliched phrase, like a wake up call. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that definitely is one because you are instantly not in control of anything. You know, there's just so many Uh, hoops that you have to jump through. There's so many um, just kind of like pieces of the puzzle that you have to put together in order to, um, you know, prove to someone else who doesn't know you at all that this, this mistake you made isn't who you are. And then you start questioning yourself, like, you know, am I this person or am I, you know, a a good person? It takes you on a journey where you really, really have to, at least for me, I don't know about everybody. I I know, uh, you know, people have different, um, you know, relationships to that particular situation. But for me in general, or for me specifically, um, I really, really had to sit down with myself and ask the hard questions you know, like, is this what you want to do? Is this what you want to be known for? Is this, you know, but I think it's, it's been a while now. And even from the beginning, I talked about it, um, as much as I could, because it's cathartic for me. I think, um, I like talking about the hard stuff because I've gone through it and it's my life and it's the coming out of it, you know, and the perspective that I have now that is the medicine for me. And I've noticed in my life has been the medicine for so many other people, you mm-hmm. know, me being able to just be honest. And um, like I said before, I think I said, you know, I don't know where it comes from, but oftentimes people, I, I per- portray um, a very put together person, you know, and for the most part I am, you know, I'm, I'm very likable. I'm, you know, 
yeah, I will, I will say I can be charismatic and I can be in any room from the white house to the trap house. You know, it's like, I, I just love people. Um, but there's internal struggle that goes on in my head and in my heart, you know, and I'm not always on and together. Um, and I have to work on that to ask myself those questions. So the DUI, um, it, it made me do that for sure. Because even after it happened, um, months after it happened, you know, you still have to go to court to, you know, make sure that you're still on the right track or whatever the case may be. So it's constantly coming back up for a really long time. Um, not to mention the, you know, the money that it cost um, the, for that mistake to happen. So that was definitely a big one. And, you know, another one for sure is uh, the death of both of my parents a year apart. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was tough. That was a tough one. So, and, um, I was about nine and 10 years ago, respectively, you know, so I was in my mid twenties. Um, my dad was, uh, diagnosed with lung cancer. He also spent my entire life in prison. So, um, but we had a really good relationship. I had a great dad, um, spent a lot of time talking to him, sending letters back and forth. I even, um, had the privilege of, having like conjugal visits with my father. So my aunt and I would go up there. We would stay for a week at a time in this like little house with a playground. Um, and this is like actually within the walls of a penitentiary. Um, so that was interesting. That's a story that I don't think I've ever, sh- you know, not that I've never shared with you, I've shared it, but I've never known anybody else to have that story. So um, he passed away and I knew he was going to pass away and it still was hard. My mother, on the other hand, died suddenly in her sleep. And that just threw me for a complete loop. Um, and having to deal with, I, I don't think it ever, I don't think no matter how old you are, 20, 30, 60, 70, and you lose a parent, you feel orphaned, mm-hmm. you know, you feel like, I feel like I'm on, I'm in the ocean you know, and I'm just kind of floating there. And no matter who is reaching out to me to give me motherly advice, there's that bond isn't there. You know, it's like a mom daughter bond and it's cultivated over a long period of time. And my mom and I had our fair share of, you know, issues for sure. And it still didn't matter. (laughs) You know, it's still, I still have moments where I'm like, man, I wish I could talk to my mom, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, but it's made me so strong and it's made me have to just, you know, deal with things in a different way and reach out to people that might not be my mom or my dad, but I know that love me, um, and, and find, find the answers. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, motherly advice, right. Or, um, just, I think that's the phrase that you use. What would you say were the most impactful or the most impactful things that you learned from each of your parents? Yeah. So for my dad, it was to be myself. Um, my dad knew that I was a lesbian before I knew. Um, he said he knew at birth. He said he knew when I was in my mom's stomach. And, you know, I, I don't, I think that that was just kind of like a story to make me feel better, which it did. It worked. Um, <laughs> So he was always super, super supportive in me being who I wanted to be and being like this strong, like funky, badass chick. You know, he, you know, would 
over the phone and over letters, he would say, you know, like, wear this or this. And you know, he would help me develop my style, my swag. My dad was a model. Um, so it was really, really nice to have that support system, you know, at that age when, you know, my mom, it wasn't like she didn't want to accept that and she just didn't see it that way. So she's like, no, this is my daughter, this is my girl, I'm gonna put her in these clothes, these bows, these shoes. And my dad was like, no, get her some Harley Davidson boots and get her a leather jacket and get her, you know, jean button up shirts, which I still wear like three or four times a week <laughs> because of that. Um, and that made me so happy. I was just, just like, this is just the coolest thing ever. Um, so that was, the, you know, it's definitely a thing I learned from my dad and, and unconditional love, you know, for sure. Um, every single letter ended with like, um, you know, or you're my baby and don't you forget it, you know, and I'll never forget that. It's just like, I think of it often, you know, maybe even daily. And uh, my mother, she taught me perseverance through her own actions. She um, didn't plan on being a single mom, you know. Uh, my dad went to jail when I was 11 months old. And her entire vision of her life switched in one moment. You know, she thought yeah. she was family. She comes from a fam a very like family oriented family in the sense that her older brothers and sisters were married. They had children. They lived in a home. They, you know, and she wanted that. And um, and without really having any choice, she became like this, you know, self made black sheep you know, because of the, the particular situation. But, um, you know, she made it work and she took really, really good care of me. She kept me in really good schools. Um, you know, she had her own mental uh, challenges for sure, emotional challenges that uh, showed up in, in really challenging ways for a child. Um, but as an adult, looking back on it, I appreciate all of the things that she instilled in me without even knowing that she did it, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, just kind of like little things like how well I can pack a bag to travel, how well, you know, how I can cook and clean the kitchen at the same time. So by the time I'm done cooking, like the kitchen's clean, little things like that are really important. And I, I think at, at least for me, um, it, it, it helps me, uh, identify myself and who, who taught me that and where did I get it from? You know, when I'm cooking say, I go outside to grab something out of the car and I come back in the house and the house smells like garlic because I put so much garlic in my food because my mom put garlic in her food. Those things, um, little things like that are just, they're more to me than like, you know, she taught me the art of X, Y, and Z. So yeah, it's those seemingly, it's that idea that there are no small things, right? The small things are the big things that, mm -hmm. I don't know, I think that it really is important and empowering to feel grounded in where you come from, regardless of what that means to you, right? Different people might describe that differently, but there is something powerful about those small things. It's funny that you mentioned the packing the bag. My mother was a, a flight attendant for 18 years and like nobody can pack a small bag like her, you know? And I, I think about that all the time now, um, you know, anytime I'm packing for something, you know, how would she do this? Or <laughs> it's funny. Right. It's yeah, I, so 
uh, I mean, both, both of my parents are, are still, are still alive. They're 13 years apart in age. Um, so my, my dad just had his 80th birthday last year and I don't know what it is about something about this year. I've been thinking about death a lot. I feel like this is not the first podcast episode that this has come up on just my own death, just death in general. The fact not necessarily even in a depressing way, but just in a realistic way. And I've been thinking, um, how much I not necessarily want to have my parents on the podcast. I don't know if that's something that they would be up for, but having this type of conversation with them. I remember my grandfather, who I was very close with, passed away a couple of years ago and had, I mean, lived an incredible life. Just, I mean, I feel like of that, that generation saw things over that time span that I don't know that will ever happen in one generation again. And he had all these amazing stories and I always wanted him to write a book. And, you know, he always said no. And there was one time I was visiting him where I turned on, you know, the voice memo voice recording, you know, on, on your iPhone or whatever, um, secretly. Cause he, I mean, he would have been so angry if he knew. And I just had him tell me stories for an hour, hour and a half. And he had no idea that it was being recorded. And then when he died, you know, I saved it and uh, sent it to the whole family right at that time. I felt like, okay, well, he, he, <laughs> he can't get mad at me now, I guess. Um, and it was just such a powerful thing I listened to. I listened to it a lot, actually a couple times on my hike last summer. There's just something about that, that I don't know, like there's, I don't even know what the point is that I'm trying to make other than that. It's, I think that it really is important and powerful to kind of cherish the experiences of the people that we came from. Oh my gosh. I 100,000% agree. I have, I also have been thinking a lot about not necessarily death, but the, the act of storytelling, the act of um, creating a family tree in a different way. And one of my goals is to record my family story, is to interview them. Um, I'll start in Bali. You know, I'm going to Bali in about 10 days. It's my little sister's birthday. And I'll be there with her and two of my cousins. So, you know, I've already primed them. They know that they're going to be interviewed. Um, And I really just want their stories recorded and documented and archived for future generations to come. And it doesn't have to be about anything in particular, just like you were saying, you know, just tell me stories, grandpa, things that he might not have thought were, you know, uh, book worthy or that thousands of people want to know, but there's so much information um, in history and there's so many little stories that, would help us move forward in the world, you know, to know where we came from and to know how the people to our left and to our right navigated the world. Mm-hmm. Little, I wonder things like, uh, you know, when before cars, when there were horse and carriages, who cleaned up all the horse poop? <laughs> you know, what kind of job was that? Who refilled the gas? Who refilled the oil and the gas lamps on the street lights? Like, and what happened? Was there ever a shortage? Like little, you know, things of how life, you know, moved through uh, a day is really, really interesting to me. Oh my gosh. It's so interesting to me too. I feel... So the, the, just that kind of what you were describing about, you know, your little sister, just sitting down, having conversations, an interesting thing that doing this podcast has brought to my life. You know, on one hand, I joke about how it's the best secret weapon to make friends with interesting people because people will just give you two hours of their time. People who you think, oh my gosh, this person would never sit down and talk to me. And you know, that's, it is incredible to be able to meet new people and, you know, have interesting conversations exactly like this, right? That's how we got introduced. And, but 
it's been really interesting for me. I've had some of my best friends on the podcast. I had my husband on the podcast. And even the people that you do know the best, right, or you think you know the best, or they play the biggest role in your life, how infrequent it is to have essentially like a structured conversation or a more thoughtful conversation with them. I learned new things about some of the people that I would say are the closest to me in the world just through the act of sitting down for a couple hours with the intention of we're going to be honest about our lives, right? And that was just, I would love to expand that into kind of like you said, family members, other people, even if it's not public, even if nothing gets done with it, just the act of kind of going through that with someone I think is really powerful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that you said, you know, even if it doesn't go public, I think that's been one of the hesitations with some of my family. Like, why? For what? You know, I'm like, for us, <laughs> you know, not for for anything else. I think sometimes when, you know, a younger generation might ask an older generation, they think that there's always some uh, some end, you know, some public uh, portrayal. And I'm like, no, 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 I, I don't want to make this into anything necessarily unless, you know, I think that you know, it would be beneficial for the world or you do, but I love the idea of just having a, you know, like a collection of audio tapes, like, like Britannica of our family, Mm. (laughs) anybody to, you know, pick, pick the M, you know, on a, on a Monday and just listen. I think it would be great. Yeah. So I'm curious then how this intersects with your passion for photography. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've been trying to figure that out, to be honest with you. Um, I love this idea of portrait photography. Um, I'm a huge black and white fan. And um, recently, actually just really recently, a couple of days ago, I was uh, talking with somebody and we uh, were going through a photographer's website. I can't think of her name right now, but she does long exposure photography and she talks a lot about how she's obsessed with this idea of capturing somebody in the purest moment, you know, um, without your typical one sixtieth of a second picture, which is a typical shutter speed, but to really open it up and let that exposure go over a long period of time, let somebody just kind of sit there doing their thing. And, and then you catch them in that moment. I really, really like that idea Um, of kind of using long exposure photography incorporated with uh, the story over that period of time. Yeah. So for you with photography, is this a passion, something you love? Is it something you also do for money? Like what role does it play in your life or what's your intention with photography? You know, so I just kind of uh, like slipped into it, fell into it. I, um, you know, I would always take good pictures with, uh, whatever camera, you know, I had my whole life, a disposable camera, like I could get the best picture from a disposable camera. And when, uh, I think I was, you know, my mid twenties or something, uh, my aunt's friend gave me a film camera and I just wanted to be cool. I wanted to be, there's a movie called Love Jones um, with Lorenz Tate and Nia Long. And she's a photographer and he's a poet writer and they live in Philly and they go to like spoken word poetry. And like, I was like, that's what I want my life to be. I want those kind of friends. I want to do, you know, I just want that kind of life. So when I got this camera, I started playing around with it. 
And then I stopped for a long time and more recently picked it back up, you know, maybe within the past three or four years. And it was, yeah, just a hobby, just something that I really liked doing. I tried my hand at making it a business and doing it for money. I did that for about a year. Um, but you know, doing something as a, as a business is much different, you know, being a business person is much different than just like taking really good pictures. I tried, um, before I started taking money, I tried bartering, uh, cause I love the idea of bartering. I, you know, my relationship with money is still kind of finicky. I don't really care for it. I wish we didn't need it kind of thing. So I don't like charging necessarily. Um, that proved to be a bad decision. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, ultimately it, it's just a clean transaction kind of thing. Um, and you can really put your best foot forward too when you, you know, you have your, uh, you know, your rules and regulations kind of laid out and how you want to go about a, a transaction. Um, but it's a long answer for, I think that it will probably stay a passion and not a business. Um, I, you know, I tried the business thing and it doesn't feel as good to me as it does to just call up somebody who I really think has a great story or who I really want to get in front of the camera and say like, let's go shoot, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite or maybe like a most meaningful or particularly meaningful photo that you've taken? Like, is there something that comes to mind? Hmm. The thing that comes to mind is a photo that I took of a young girl in, at a Black Lives Matter rally maybe a year ago. And this particular rally um, was led by a high school out here. I believe it was Garfield High School. I'm not sure. And so it was a bunch of school-aged kids. And... Um, I think she was at the time she was saying, hands up, don't shoot. And she has her hands cupped around her mouth. And she's, you know, saying that through through her hands. And she's just this beautiful chocolate, you know, smooth skin young girl. And it she looks so innocent. Um and she is so innocent and it broke my heart that she had to, you know, be out there, um, kind of fighting for her natural human right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's like, I, I believe in capturing a moment in time. I always call it to still a breath S T I L L. Um, and that was a really powerful moment in time that I just happened to capture. I think, uh, that particular day has some of my favorite pictures that I've taken, um, I, I had this adrenaline going through my body. I got off work early just to go shoot that rally. I drove pretty fast to get there. I parked and I saw the march going down a big downtown street and I ran, I felt like Peter Parker. I felt like Superman or something, um, with my camera and I ran about four blocks and then I reached the, um, the rally point and I ran in front of them about three blocks. And so I was standing in front of this large mass of people coming towards me with their fist raised. And I was just snapping, snapping, snapping. And it felt so good. You know, it just felt like I was archiving history. 
Mm, I have goosebumps. That's a beautiful story. Wow. Uh, you mentioned before having disposable cameras growing up and that even with just a disposable camera that you were always able to get the best shot. What do you attribute that to? What is it about you that makes you a good photographer? I see people. I like, I really see what they're thinking and who they are inside of the, um, sometimes mask or disguise or costume, the clothing that they put on to, or the armor that they armor their social when they go outside the door. Um, I think that society uh, has a few different slots, a few different boxes that we can kind of insert ourselves in um, to kind of go with the masses and go with the norm. And a lot of people choose to do that. And if you kind of, you know, are different or an individual, you go outside of those boxes, um, sometimes you can be seen as uh, a little too radical. I think it takes a lot of people back. They put themselves back into a box. Um, But I see you outside of the box immediately. And it's just, it's always been something that I could do. Uh, I think it comes from being an introvert, being a, you know, an only child, spending a lot of time observing the world, having a really active, um, home life in the beginning. You know, my mom was a beautiful, beautiful woman and she had lots of friends and she had the parties and, um, I had lots of aunts and uncles and people in and out of the house. And I wanted to be in those spaces and in order for you to be in those spaces in my childhood, um, as a child, you had to be, uh, quiet, (laughs) you know, you had to be seen and not heard and sometimes not even seen. So I was really good about, finding a corner and just watching. And it it helped me to kind of see those uh, moments in between time that are super important. So this idea of the boxes, right, that you mentioned that here's the handful of boxes that society lets us be in, right, and go along with the flow. And if you live outside those boxes, what's your personal relationship with like being in the boxes or out of the boxes? Yeah, I'm a, I'm really working on that. I think um, there's this this balance between acknowledging and defying all at the same time. So, um, for instance, I'm African American. I'm a woman. I'm gay. I'm masculine identified. I, you know, am oftentimes confused for a male, um, which it doesn't bother me because my hair is really short and I wear collared shirts and, you know, boots and like, what else do I expect a 75 year old woman to do? Um, but at the same time, I want to be known for who I am. Right. Uh, I walk into situations sometimes with, uh, an armor on because I know that I'm what I call a trifecta of minority. And that sometimes can, uh, it, it makes you aware of who you are when you walk into places. Uh, a lot of times it works to my advantage. You know, a lot of times I'm a big fish in a small pond and I appreciate that. So, um, and I really, really enjoy the boy community, the B O I boy, where it's uh, a lot of masculine identified women who are holding their own and who are saying, I can be who I want to be. I can, you know, raise children. I can be a CEO of a company. I can start my own company. And there's a lot of us doing that. And it's a beautiful thing to see. So I definitely identify with them and I am in solidarity with them and I stand with them just like I stand with women, just like I stand with African-Americans, just like I stand with, you know, army veterans. 
um, and just like I stand with humans. So I, I like to reserve the right to jump in and out of any box I want to. Mm, yeah. And that's just what it is. I realize there's boxes and that's kind of where I'm at right now. It's like, okay, cool. I'm not going to stay outside of them. They're here, but I'll pick and choose which ones I want to be in at the time. Well, I think it's really powerful what you said about, you know, that we have identities or we, you know, we fit certain boxes or certain groups or whatever, but we, the, I don't remember exactly the, the beautiful wording that you said. I'm clearly being really inarticulate, but about wanting to be seen as more than that. Like those things can be true and also these other things, right? Like something can be true, but that's not the whole story. This one identity is not all of who I am. And just the kind of beautiful places that everything kind of intersects, like you mentioned the trifecta or, you know, all of that. Um, I think that's interesting too, being able to, I don't know, be more than just a one dimensional box. Yeah, you know, I mean, we're super complex. Like going back to the very beginning of our conversation, talking about the microscopic aspects of life. You know, if we were to pigeonhole cellular evolution, we wouldn't have evolution. We wouldn't have, you know, the beautiful species that we have in the world um, and the different biomes of the world, you know, wouldn't be as diverse without plant diversity. So I think we oftentimes take for granted how much we utilize diversity in the world to navigate and to cultivate the types of, you know, flavors that we want to create the type of temperature that we want and the type of, you know, lifestyle that we want to live in. All of that comes from diversity. And when it comes to humans, sometimes we don't, and, and, you know, I have a very uh, in-depth theory about this, but just short, uh, in short, um, it goes back to kind of like Newtonian physics, right? Newtonian physics is this idea of taking uh, matter and quantifying it, taking a planet, taking a length of time, taking a, you know, a distance and putting a number on it, a meter, a pound, a kilogram, uh, you know, these different things. And then with those particular structures that we've created, putting a value on it, making formulas to figure out how things work. How long is a light year? How long will it take us to get certain places? And once we were able to do that, our understanding and our relationship with nature and our relationship with the world changed significantly before it was more of like a religious science where we figured out our our goal was to figure out how to have a dynamic relationship with the world and, and with the universe. Then after we were able to quantify it, it was like, how do we dominate this system? Yeah. we use it for our advantage? How do we manipulate it? And that combined with the inarticulation of Darwinian theory, which is like survival of the fittest, um, it really changed things because I don't think that Darwin necessarily meant what people are thinking that he meant. It's not about being the best, being the victor, being the lion. You know, it's more a, a theory of survival of cooperation. The only way that we survive as humans in this body is by these trillions of cells cooperating with one another. And that's the only way that this planet survives too is cooperation. It's not about the survival of the fittest. So those two concepts kind of being misunderstood and used in a way that doesn't benefit us as a whole has changed humans' understanding in relationship with other humans, which is sad, um, as well as other species, which 
we don't communicate with. We simply tell them how to live, where to live, you know, what to do, when to hibernate, when to not hibernate, like, um, you know, all of those different aspects. So I really push against that. I push against this idea that um, that diversity isn't in everything. I think people are saying that without even knowing that they're saying it. So I'm, I'm constantly reminding people of how beautiful the world is by accepting every single thing that is and not putting, uh, it, you can put a label on it if you want. I mean, that's what we do, right? It's like 12 o'clock or it's, it's Monday. Like it's a label. We have to figure out a way to communicate with each other about what's going on in the world. But I don't judge Monday because it's Monday, <laughs> you know, and I don't judge noon because it's noon. It's like, oh, you, you think you're so fancy because you're high noon. Right. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, I think about that all the time in terms of like the nature of truth and, you know, what is objective true. You know, we can say, oh, it's noon or it's Monday to your point about, you know, we need a common language with which to communicate things, right? But Monday isn't a real thing. We just made that up, right? Like a, a work week is not a real thing. A month is not a real thing in, in like with the parameters that we put around it, right? And the same thing that, you know, California versus Oregon, like state line, everything's arbitrary. Right? <laughs> like sometimes right. I think about how much of our lives we base around these truths, I guess in quotes or not quotes, that are only true because we agreed that they're true, right? And like the ways in which that's helpful and then the point at which that becomes limiting. So true. So true. And I think, you know, it seems as if the more uh, people that uh, are born into this world and, and that have a say in the things, the the more we're kind of divided in the sense of what that actually means. I love when I hear people say what you just did, you know, that there's an imaginary state line. That's that's like not a real thing at all. And the fact that there's so much money and, and, and time being focused on, on this imaginary line. Um, it, it's disheartening at times. And, um, but it, at the same time, it's really helped me to have a better relationship with myself because I have to go inside to build the dynamic relationship within so that I can like reverberate that out into the community. Otherwise mm -hmm. I'm just spinning. <laughs> yeah, totally. I want to go back to something that, um, that came up for me when you were talking about, you know, the, the boxes, right. Being in the boxes or out of the boxes or living the life that you want to live. Something that I think about a lot is, well, I guess sidebar this, especially on the internet, I feel like the last couple of years, there's been this trend of like, um, just do you like give no fucks, right? Like this it kind of like rallying cry around not caring what people think, um, which in a lot of ways sounds awesome. I think it's one of those things that sounds much easier when it's said than it is to put it into practice. And I've been thinking a lot about like practically how we get to a place within ourselves where we're truly not bothered by what people outside of our close immediate circles think, or, you know, said another way, I guess how we can really live our lives and not be governed by subconsciously worrying of, about how we'll be perceived. And I guess I'm bringing this up because I hear kind of a certain strength and confidence in how you talk about yourself and just kind of your place. And not that I think like here, you have this figured out, teach me how to do this, but that mm -hmm. I'm curious kind of what your thoughts are around that or how that, how you think about that topic of being able to be like, no, this is who I am. Even back to what you were saying about what your dad taught you about style and no, do this, like, like really be yourself, how you think about, how you think about that. 
Um, I think that I don't have a choice. I think that it's either sink or swim. And the reason I feel that way is because, um, for instance, let's talk about my environment right now. I go to um, a school that is uh, 85% female, about night. This is this is me guessing, but about 97% white. And um, I don't know, there's no masculine identified people on this campus at all. I haven't seen one. And um, so I am literally the only person <laughs> that is me, you know, or even any remote uh, version of myself, right? Of course, I'm the only me. But uh, sometimes, you know, you can have some kind of physical ally, someone that kind of looks like you, um, or has the experiences that I've had, you know, growing up in, in LA, you know, sometimes inner city, you know, there's, there's certain things that I, I bring to the environment and I could either shrink into the idea or the fact that I'm the only one, or I can rise to the occasion and take up all my space. And I think that that's super important. And that's something I've been, um, teaching myself to do, but not consciously because, um, I've never really had a problem doing that. I think I didn't do it for a long time. Like I said, I was one of those kids that was quiet. I observed, I made sure I wasn't kind of seen or known. Um, but when I got older, I definitely knew that I had to take up all my space. I had to be seen. I had to be known when I was in the military, you know, um, it's tough pushing forward as a female in the military, you know, it's getting, it's a lot easier. Some of the stories I've heard from, uh, you know, some of my, my senior superiors, it was a lot harder for them. So I appreciate them paving the way for us, but it's still a good old boy system. Like no matter how you cut it, it really is. And, um, you have to say, you know, and I remember, you know, driving to work sometimes and saying, okay, how am I going to show up today? Like, what am I going to do to be seen, to be known? We have to do twice as much sometimes to be, you know, recognized. And um, it's it's just been my lot in life. It's just been kind of like once I made the decision to cut my hair, right? Like you get the, you sometimes you get the attention that you don't want, you know, like, why'd you cut your hair off? Or where, where's your hair? Or do you want to be a boy? And, you know, just kind of ignorant questions in that way, not ignorant, like uh, negative connotation, but just not knowing, not knowing kind of how to approach situations. Um, so I've really had to put my, my mind and my intelligence and my understanding of life forward so that people would look past the boxes, you know, and say, Oh, there's another box she's in, which is smart as hell. You know, there's another box she's in, which is thoughtful. And, um, you know, and caring and, and energetically strong. So, and it feels really good when I, you know, go into a situation and I leave and I know that, that I have left the impression beyond how I show up, you know, or how I physically show up, but how I energetically show up. And that's just been really helpful for me. Yeah. Um, what ultimately made you decide to join the army? Oh man. Um, I felt like that was my rock bottom. My, um, before I joined the military is my rock bottom. I was, um, living in a shelter. I had, um, a pretty bad drug problem. I was on meth. Um, 
I, uh, it was, it was tough. Um, it took me about two weeks to get addicted to meth and about two years to get off. And, um, I, you know, it just takes a hold of you. It's one of those things, you know, it's just anyone who's ever had that addiction to that particular drug and, and anything stronger, it changes your ability to regulate decisions. It's just like the hardest thing to watch. And sometimes you watch yourself on the outside kind of going through it. Um, but, you know, I, I went down this path and I ended up in a women's shelter in Las Vegas. And I was there for about 30 days. And even in that situation, I I, I made a difference. I had a dynamic uh, in like interaction with women there, you know, because I knew that, yes, we're here. Yes, we made mistakes, but we are powerful beyond measure. Um, and then I, I left the shelter and I was staying in a weekly like motel or something ridiculous like that. And, um, I woke up and I had bed bugs, like all over bed, bed bugs all over my body. And I was like, oh my gosh, something has to change. Like I was still not strong enough to really make that change. I knew that I was a hundred thousand miles away from what my life was supposed to be, but um, I didn't know how to get out of the situation. But I went down to the lobby and I opened the yellow pages and I looked up U.S. Army recruiting and I called the recruiter. He came and picked me up and two weeks later I was in the army. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, moment of silence for that story. That's an incredible, <laughs> I guess I don't know what I thought you were going to say, but it wasn't that. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, thank you for that honesty. I, so that's, it, well, it circles back to uh, something else you said that before, you know, before we were recording that you said that you were open to talking about was addiction and recovery. So, um, I guess having gotten there, what did recovery look like for you? Oh, um, multi-phase multi-step process. Um, like I said, I have an addictive personality, so it's not that I like one thing more than the other. I liked whatever numbed me out. And I detoxed from methamphetamines in basic training. I, um, was able to kind of like manipulate the, um, processes of my body through niacin and pass the drug test to get into the army. And then I had to figure out how to, you know, cut it in, in basic training, which I did. And that was pretty tough. It wasn't as tough as I thought it was going to be because you sweat it out a lot. <laughs> That's pretty much all you do the first few weeks you're in the Army is you sweat. Um, and then I was, uh, you know, I was just so excited about having this new life and this new purpose that I wasn't really um, – thinking about drugs or alcohol. Alcohol was never really my thing, I'll be honest with you. And then I got into the real army. So after basic training, after your um, AIT, which is advanced individual training, basically school, um, I was a real soldier and I would just go to work every day. And I had this freedom that you didn't have when you're under the, the microscope of your drill sergeants. And, you know, I started drinking. And, um, I got really, really um, addicted pretty much to alcohol and it's so accessible and it's so accepted in the military. It's just, it's what people do. It's what they do all day, every day if they're not working, as soon as they get off work, you know, superiors and juniors drink together. It's just one of those things. Um, so for a long time it went unchecked and then, um, you know, I had my own series of uh, wake up calls and then I just woke up one day and I said, I'm done. And I, I don't 
I've heard stories like this when I was drinking and I could never imagine me being that person. I really thought I was going to need like clinical professional help because I was drinking, you know, every single day, maybe two bottles of wine a day, if not more. And we're talking sometimes the regular liter bottle, sometimes the, you know, two and a half liter in a bottle bottle. Um, I would drink until I passed out. I would black out every single time. It just got to a point where my mind just would go to mush, you know, basically. And I woke up one day and I said, you know, I'm done. I'm done with this. And I had a dry erase board, like one of those calendar boards in my kitchen, and I put a tick mark on it. And um, that visualization changed my life. Having that, that little something to do every day and to see a tick mark, the first seven days were super tough. They really, really were. The first three days weren't because I was so intoxicated that I was just sick for three days. And then after that, I wanted to drink, but I, I didn't because I had three days of, you know, complete hell. So the first seven days were tough. And then I had seven tick marks, though, on this board. And I was like, I haven't had a drink in seven days. Like, that hasn't happened in seven years. And then I just did it more and more and more and to the point where there was like one little section of the dry erase board that was full of these marks. And before I knew it, I had a month and two months and three months. And once I got to that point, I knew that I was never going to turn back. And I was like four years ago. That's incredible. There's it's, it's almost crazy how empowering that kind of idea, you know, I mean, I think it was Jerry Seinfeld calls it don't break the chain, right? This idea of just seeing the, well, it's been seven days, so I don't want to break that. So then it's been eight days. And that, that it's something that sounds really simple, actually really can work in a lot of situations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really, really agree. And that's why I share that story a lot, because I would have never, you know, listening to it in the, in the height of my alcoholism, um, nothing really I, I didn't think would change or, or help me in that situation. You know, a DUI didn't help. Um, you know, two of the most uh, uh, impactful things that happened in, during my uh, alcoholism was that DUI. And I was a uh, second one. I was in central Washington at a blood drive. We used to do like these week long blood drives. We were at the university. It was single day mile. That night we went out drinking and then we went back to the hotel and we went swimming in, like a best Western. They had like an indoor pool and I jumped in the shallow end of the pool and I hit my head and I cracked it on the bottom of the pool and I went to the hospital and I had like 12 staples. And I didn't even know. I felt it. Of course I knew, but I, I didn't know the severity. I just didn't want uh, anyone to know I hit my head. I was embarrassed. So I got out the pool like nothing happened. And I got into the jacuzzi. And one of my sergeants was like, what is wrong with your head? And I was like, what? And he was like, you're bleeding profusely from your head right now. And I like put my hand on my head. And my It was wet, right? So it was like, like Kool-Aid, it looked like. And I was like, and he was drunk too. And we're both medical professionals, mind you. And I was like, am I going to be okay? And he's like, hmm. Just put pressure on it. And another sergeant came downstairs who wasn't um, intoxicated at all, didn't drink, never. And he said, he looked at it and he said, go get dressed, go get in the car. We went in the car and I had absolutely no idea how bad it was. I, I had really gotten down to my skull. And, um, and even those two situations, I still drank the very next day. So I, it's amazing to me that the tick marks really helped, but it was in June. It was uh, the sun would shine through the window of my kitchen really, really bright. And it would shine right on that whiteboard. 
and it would reflect off. And, um, and that really helped. I think, you know, whatever existential power we, you know, whether it was my parents or God, whomever, they brought that sunshine right there in that spot every day to help me, help me through it. And I appreciate it. Yeah. I also think it speaks to something that I believe, which is that we don't change until we're actually ready to change or like that there has to be, and it might not even be the most obvious moment. Like you said, you know, it wasn't going to the hospital for your head or one of this, like sometimes the things that we think are going to be the catalyst for change aren't. And then what winds up like for me, I mean, with the time of this recording, right, it's March. So May 1st will be my six years of being sober. And like, I think about that for me, it was, um, I mean, I guess my, my drinking story is not, um, as dramatic as some other people's, uh, but that for, it was, it was a similar thing of, it was really just a random day and it was like looking in the mirror and you're done with this. Like we're done with this. And there were so many other times earlier that I feel like should have been that point, but weren't. And it's, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just this, I say that more just to kind of remind myself that things do sort of happen on their own timeline. Not to say that we don't have control and of course we can do hard things and we can push through stuff, but that there is an element I think of, you know, what you said, whether it's like cosmic interference or that there is, there is something larger that it doesn't always make sense. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. You know, and everything, it, it was divine timing. It happened when it was supposed to happen. My story, I believe has, you know, it's really helped people. I've, I've, I've told that story, you know, for coffee a couple of times to people and, I had a friend after telling her that story one time, she's a graphic designer and she sent me a picture of my name bird with, and I spell it with a Y and the Y were tick marks. And it was, it made me cry. It was the most beautiful image. And she said, your story really touched me. And I think, you know, if you ever decide to write a book or brand yourself or whatever, you should incorporate your tick marks um, into your name somehow. Um, so even now, you know, if I'm in class and I'm, you know, I'm zoning out or whatever, I just write bird like tick marks, <laughs> you know, it just, it's become a part of me. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's beautiful. It's a great visual image too. Yeah. Um, what the, one of the last things that I want to talk about, you mentioned, um, you know, in talking about addiction, this idea of using substances to numb out, which I think even people who let's say, aren't addicts or don't consider themselves, you know, falling into that particular box. I do think there's a really common experience in wanting to numb out, whether it's with food, with Netflix, with whatever. I mean, and not to say that it's not okay to just do any of those things. That's not what I'm saying. But I think for me anyway, that was really the hardest part of quitting drinking was learning how to feel my feelings, if that makes sense. Like not having it was such an emotional crutch. And then when that's gone, it was almost like being awake is great, except sometimes you don't want to be awake all the time. And so I'm curious what that was like for you, or if there's anything that you learned, um, just in terms of like how to not numb out, especially things that are bad or uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I'm still learning for sure. I feel like the biggest challenge for me was the, what I call social, social atrophy. Um, I could really just kind of like, you know, be uh, sociable and, you know, really, really fun at clubs and bars and things like that. And then I just didn't want to go anymore. And if I did go, I was, I was like ready to go in 30 minutes and I just didn't know how to like hold myself, you know, like, what do I do here? Um, 
And then, yes, yeah, some, when some of the harder things show up in life, you know, I, I also didn't quite know what to do with that. Um, I think that's when I started smoking again. You know, it's at least some kind of like a break and that that's not the best advice, but it, it was definitely one of my things that helped. Um, also, just little by little and doing what I could. You know, I still am really vocal about what I can and cannot do, what I feel is good for me or what isn't, you know, um, and that's really been helpful, especially in sharing my story with my friends. And, you know, now my friends ask me, are you comfortable with this? Like, do you mind if we drink? Or, you know, if I'm at the store and I'm like, do you need anything? They're like, well, a bottle of wine. Does that make you uncomfortable to buy? Just, just having the acknowledgement to me is really, really helpful, um, to stay in my story to stay in my recovery because I have support and I have people that um, hold me accountable and are proud of me. So when I start, you know, kind of struggling with some of the aspects and I want to numb out, I do Netflix, you know, <laughs> I do. And a lot of times, um, not so much anymore, but a couple of years ago, I was a recluse. I didn't go anywhere because um, I didn't know how. To, it wasn't because I wanted to drink either. I didn't want to drink. I just didn't know how to be fun or to talk to people. I had to learn how to talk to people again because I had depended on alcohol so much. So for me, it's really just kind of like having uh, a really strong support system and taking all of the time that you need to be whomever you are in that moment. Mm, I love that. I can so relate to what you were saying about, you know, how to be social and how to have fun like that. I feel like that's an ongoing thing for me, even still. I mean, I feel I feel like if I would have known six years ago that I would still be struggling with these things, I think it would have been a lot harder to quit drinking, but that yeah. this that this idea also that even though one event can be a very kind of distinct, discreet before and after moment, right? Like before May 1st, 2011, I drank and afterwards I didn't like, it seems like, okay, that's a pivotal life change moment, which for sure it was, but I think it's a misconception that, okay, well then everything's just better and different now, right? That to, I think to certain people, I don't know that there's, maybe this idea that, well, you should be over it by now, or you should have all of these things figured out. I think grief works the same way, right? Like we have a timetable of, okay, well, it's been a year. So like, why are you still so, I don't know. I think there's something interesting in that to navigate of, you know, to what you said about taking as much time and being who you need to be in the moment. And that that might be different, you know, one day versus four months down the line versus four months earlier, that it is a process and that there's kind of a constant, I don't always want to say evolution, but like cyclical nature of things going on sometimes are harder than other times. Yeah, absolutely. I, I 100% agree. And, you know, when you just brought up grief, that's what I was thinking of right before you said it. It's the same exact thing. The people that kind of have a timeline that haven't gone through the type of grief that you've gone through or they deal with their grief differently. You know, my parents passing away a decade ago, like it's still fresh. It is super fresh and it will be for as long as it needs to be. You know, it just it will. It's, it's a different type of freshness. It, you know, I can, I, I can, you know, have more of a dynamic relationship with it um, and kind of use it as energy and power. Um, but that doesn't mean it's gone anywhere. And I don't even know if I want it to, to be quite honest with you, because it's, it, it just is what it is, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is an awesome 
place to start to wrap up the way that we end these episodes are with what we call community questions. So it's kind of a fun, random series of nine questions that the listeners want me to ask all eight guests this season. If you are down to answer nine random questions, let's do it. If you could only watch one TV show, I know we were just talking about Netflix for the rest of your life, which show would it be? Seinfeld. Ooh, interesting. Why? Oh my gosh. I love dry humor. I love uh, normalcy. I love finding the interesting and the not interesting. And I think that they are brilliant at that. Absolutely brilliant. I would just add a few more people of color into that show. (laughs) I was recently thinking that I should give Seinfeld another chance. Growing up, uh, I feel like you and I are in the similar age range for sure. I feel like people were either Seinfeld uh, fans or Friends fans. And I was definitely a Friends fan. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I should probably give Seinfeld another shot. (laughs) Yeah, I think I really do think that she would enjoy it now. I think sometimes, you know, as as life goes on, you'll find some things that have happened to you now. And you're like, I can completely relate to that. Or, you know, maybe not. I wasn't really like a social person growing up. So I didn't have a lot of friends like that. So I couldn't relate to the friends thing. Um, But and which is weird, because Seinfeld is a friend, you know, show as well. I just felt I don't know. I love the quirkiness of that show. The writing is amazing. Well, it's definitely more life commentary than Friends is. Yeah, that's that's very true. Interesting. Okay, so the next question. Of everything that you've spent money on in the past few months, what would you say is the one purchase, experience, whatever, it doesn't have to be a tangible thing, the one thing that you've spent money on in the past couple months that's made you the happiest? Uh, Date nights. Oh, okay. Talk about that. Yeah, I I love my partner and I love my relationship and any and we're both super busy. You know, she's an entrepreneur. She works really hard, uh, long hours. And, you know, I'm in a super hard program, work really hard, long hours. So we any chance that we get to spend time together, specifically outside of the house, not studying and working and just having really good conversations. You know, we've been together, you know, two years uh, I always say we're in our third year because I like prolonging things and making it sound like, you know, we're deep in it. Um, but yeah, we are in our third year and we still have these really, really good conversations and we can talk for hours over oysters and mussels. And so I love, you know, investing in, in times like those. That's awesome. Well, shout out to Laren. It's such a treat to get to have you guys on back to back seasons. Nice. <laughs> um, what's something that only those in your close inner circle know about you? Or that maybe, yeah, I guess that people would be surprised to learn. Um, let's see. Things that I'm double jointed, I guess. Okay. <laughs> it's so strange. That's the first thing that popped into my mind. So, yeah, I can like um, clasp my hands together and bring them all the way to from the front of my body to the back of my body without releasing them. That's some uh, Cirque du Soleil shit. I like it. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> What's something that you're not doing right now because you're afraid? Oh man. Um, probably blogging and guest writing and inserting myself into this, uh, this nature boy 
ideal that I have. You know, I've done it a couple of times. Um, like I mentioned in the uh, interview, I really love my boy community. And there's a lot of us that are doing things specific to what we love. Um, recently, I was writing an article uh, for, you know, a weekly article for boysocietymag.com. Um, and it was a nature boy series. Uh, we recently stopped providing that particular aspect of the newsletter. Um, and I told myself that I was going to continue doing that and continue kind of like being the authority in my community in that way. Um, so I definitely need to get on that. That's one thing I'm doing that, um, or want to want to do that I'm not doing. What's the one song that you always turn up and sing along with when you hear it? Oh my goodness. Redemption song by Bob Marley. <laughs> That's a good it, choice. Yeah. It gives me goosebumps and it, it tears me up almost every single time I listen to it. What's something that you really love about yourself? My smile. Um, I love my smile because it's big and it's warm and it makes other people smile. That's such a lovely answer. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> Makes me wish that we were doing this in person. Um, how do you typically spend the first hour of your day? What does that look like? Uh, typically spend the first hour of my day reading the news, um, emails, and studying or doing homework that I should have been doing the night before. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very human answer. Um, so the next question is about books. Which book or two to three books of any genre would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you reread or recommend most often? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, okay, let's see. The, the first book that comes to mind is Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt. Um, it's about this uh, young Irish family, um, specifically a young boy named Frank. It's an autobiographical book um, that is... Uh, changed changed my life just the writing and kind of uh seeing what uh, people go through um so it was really really good i could talk forever about it but i know this is a smaller segment um i also love the emperor of maladies which is the history of cancer um it was beautifully written it's a great mix of kind of like novel and reference you know science and story yeah, I really, really love that. Um, mm. Those are good. I'm going to put links to all this in the show notes, but I love that those are two really different books. Yeah, that, that's how I like to read for sure. <laughs> I know I'm the same way. I'm like reading erotica and then reading some like serious academic thing. <laughs> like, oh, that's my life. Um, the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take in the coming weeks or months? Hmm. It would be to send genuine loving energy to children. And whether that be uh, smiling at them in a grocery store, um, helping them tie their shoe. I know that there's a lot of like weird energy of how close to get to kids and, you know, all of these other things. And I realized that, um, but you know, more recently I saw a kid and he was, you know, having a temper tantrum in the grocery store and, you know, his mom was like yelling at him and don't touch this and don't touch that. And, and that's one of my least favorite things when you tell a kid, don't touch an orange or a lemon, like what, um, 
you know, and I just looked at him and I gave him a really genuine smile and he calmed down. And it's just a practice that I've had for a long time of just really engaging with children. I think a lot of times we can have a very separate relationship from little people um, and they only exist kind of to their parents or if they're super cute to somebody. And I think that that's um, doing them a disservice. So. Mm. That's a a great call to action. I love that. So specific and interesting. Yeah, no, that that's great. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? What's your favorite way to connect if you have one? Rock on. Uh, So yeah, I've been off of social media for a while, but um, slowly getting back on, you know, after the political buzz is slowing down a little bit. So you can find me on Facebook. My name is Bird Waters, Bird with a Y, um, wide open. Um, uh, IG, my name is Bird I, with an I like your eyeball, (laughs) with an underscore in between each of those words, uh, and my Tumblr which is birdeyephotography at tumblr.com. And I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was incredible. Thank you so much. It was so relaxing. (laughs) I loved it. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. So if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 30 hours of bonus content with new stuff added every single month, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight-episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and I can't wait to get to know you better behind the scenes in our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 